0: Hello, and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters, matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology the economy and international security in shaping India's future. I'm your host, Shayud Roy, and this time we are talking about labor-intensive manufacturing in India. In this episode of Interpreting India, we will be looking at the importance of labor-intensive manufacturing, the problems it faces, and what led to the present circumstances. India's development has not been uniform and has leapfrogged from agriculture to services Skipping over a manufacturing phase. But the agriculture and services sectors, however, typically do not create enough productive jobs for those at the bottom of the education and skills ladder. There is thus a need for labor intensive manufacturing to absorb those with low levels of education and skills, but only around 11 to 12% of the total employment is in manufacturing. And this share has been essentially flat for two decades. There is also too much labor employed in the low-productivity, unorganized sector, and too few jobs in the high-productivity, formal sector. As recently as 2015 to 2016, the unorganized sector continued to employ over 70% of total manufacturing employment. Inclusive growth would require us to find ways to enable formal manufacturing to prosper. To discuss these issues, we are joined today by Dr. Radhika Kapoor. Dr. Kapoor is a visiting professor at the Indian Council for Research on International Economic Relations, in addition to having previously worked at the Planning Commission and at the International Labor Organization, Geneva. Her research interests include poverty and inequality, labor economics and industrial performance, and she has published extensively on labor-intensive manufacturing in India, and has recently edited and contributed to a collection of essays in honor of Dr. Isher Aluwalia called "A New Reform Paradigm." Dr. Kapoor, welcome to Interpreting India.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, it has been illuminating to read your work to get a sense of the state of manufacturing in India. And I want to use this opportunity to help us. Uh, if you could to help us understand, if you could start by setting some context on what hurdles manufacture on uh, what hurdles manufacturing in india faces
1: so so you know before actually outlining what are the hurdles that the manufacturing sector has faced in india i think it's important to reiterate the importance of manufacturing led growth for a country like India. And you have already done that very succinctly in your introduction. Uh, but let me nevertheless reinforce this issue uh, because India really stands out for its idiosyncratic structural transformation, where we have gone from a stage of agricultural led growth to service led growth and unlike other countries which at similar levels of development uh, were driven by manufacturing led growth india's structural transformation trajectory has not been like that now of course there is you know uh, it is believed in uh, some people argue that you know it's fine that we've had this process of idiosyncratic structural transformation that services led growth may be the answer to both growth and job creation. But I think it is important to recognize that historically, no country has been able to become a developer-advanced country without going through this phase of manufacturing-led growth. Because the sort of backward and forward linkages that the manufacturing sector has with the rest of the economy is far stronger as compared to any other sector of the economy. More importantly, if you look at the profile of India's labor force, you would see that, you know, vast majorities, and as and again, as recently as, you know, 2018-19, uh, the periodic labor force survey data tells us, and I picked this point because it is pre-pandemic data, uh, tells us that, you know, almost a quarter uh, of people basically have very low level of education, and if you were to use that education as a proxy for their levels of skills, what we are basically saying is that a very large share of India's population, its its uh, its labour force, is still you know low low skilled or unskilled, and when these people are exiting agricultural sector, which is what was happening in India till 2018-19. It is the manufacturing sector which creates jobs for these kind of people. So the service-led growth model basically creates jobs for the very highly educated, for the very highly skilled, which despite the rapid advances that we have made on, on the education side, we still You know, I haven't attained that level where our our population, our labor force is so educated that everyone can be absorbed in these high-skilled services. So therefore, at this point, especially when there is a huge conversation happening about India's demographic dividend, um, you know, India will be able to realize that demographic dividend only if it creates productive jobs for its vast labor force. And there, the role of the manufacturing sector is crucial. It has to emerge as that engine of job creation. Uh, Now, to answer your question about what are the hurdles, if anyone has sort of, you know, eyeballed the literature on the subject, there are a vast set of issues. Uh, They range from India's labor regulations, uh, infrastructure bottlenecks, difficulties in accessing credit. Uh, there are issues to do with land acquisition, environmental clearances. There are issues to do with the lack of skilled labor. The fact that doing business in India is, is very difficult. There are these complex rules and regulations and procedures, all of which serve as a bottleneck. There is a role of India's trade policy in that as well. So it's, it's a confluence of factors as a result of which, you know, Three decades after liberalization also, uh, the manufacturing sector still accounts for anywhere between just 17 to 18 percent of India's GDP. And uh, it still accounts for just about 11 to 12 percent of employment. And of course, you know, we can disentangle these bottlenecks uh, in more detail because they might vary across labor-intensive and capital-intensive industries. And and here, you know, since we are setting the stage for this conversation, uh, it's also important for me to highlight that within manufacturing also, you know, in India, it is capital-intensive industries which have performed well in the formal manufacturing sector. So you have things like, you know, the motor vehicles industry, chemical and chemical products. All of these have the capital-intensive industries which are not that employment intensive, they have formed far better than labor intensive industries like textiles, apparels, food products and so on, which could have created more jobs. And here we are talking about the formal sector. Uh, and we'll get into this dualism in the manufacturing sector, I guess, during the course of this conversation. Uh, so, so let me stop at, at this point.
0: Sure. Um, uh, thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, so, I'm going to uh, start by uh, taking up on just one facet of all the causes that you mentioned. Uh, And of course, as you said, like uh, a lot of the hurdles in manufacturing are vast and varied. Uh, But just to start with uh, one of your papers, uh, uh, the one uh, uh, that you wrote in 2015. And also, I'll try to weave in uh, this with another paper that you wrote in 2019. And this has to do with the issue of labor regulations. Uh, so, we know that over time, uh, there has been a lot of uh, there ha- the issue of labor regulations have been contentious. And, like, people have said that, oh, uh, uh, there are problems with the IDA Act and about retrenchment laws and things like that. Uh, but you have mentioned in your papers, and as well as other authors have mentioned something similar, that these labor regulations have actually been around for decades and but instead we are seeing that labor intensive uh, uh, that labor intensity is actually falling across uh, industries so it cannot be the whole story uh, the issue of labor regulations themselves cannot be the whole story so what would be your take on what firms have done to uh, get around this so the question
1: of the role of labor regulations in impacting India's industrial performance has frankly got way more attention than it truly deserves uh, to my mind in in the in you know both the academic literature and the policy discourse um Because if you pick up most papers, they will invariably argue that the reason that manufacturing, in particular labor-intensive manufacturing, has not done well in India is because India has very rigid labor regulations. And a lot of that rigidity stems around from, in particular, the Industrial Disputes Act that you mentioned, Chapter 5B of the Industrial Disputes Act, which says that basically if a factory wants to lay off even one worker, uh, it has to seek the permission of the state government in which it is located to lay off or retrench that one worker if it has 100 or more workers. Uh, So, you know, regulations such as these or regulations stemming from the Factories Act and so on have created this perception that India has very rigid labor regulations. And, and arguably, you know, you, it, it, that, that that's not untrue. But it's also important to recognize that what these labor regulations are on paper and what they are in practice is completely different. There is a huge divergence between what it is de jure and what it is de facto, uh, because over the years, uh, you know, firms have basically figured out different circumvention strategies where they are able to come around these labor laws to various means, such as, for example, hiring of contract workers, uh, getting people in, in, in positions where they give them short breaks in the middle so they don't show up as permanent workers on their payrolls, very often promoting workers to positions of supervisory and managerial staff so they don't get covered under the regulations such as IDA, using apprentices uh, to do regular work. So there are various sort of strategies that firms have used to circumvent those, those regulations. and. Even, you know, the, the academic literature, which has argued that it is labor regulations that hurt the performance of the manufacturing sector. A lot of that basically stems from one very famous paper by Besley and Burgess in 2004, where they basically created an index uh, which classified states as having flexible or inflexible labor regulations based on their analysis and interpretation of amendments which were made to the Industrial Disputes Act. And that index that they created has basically been used by a vast number of academic papers. I mean, all of us, including myself who work on this subject, have used uh, that that paper and tried to analyze the the impact of these regulations. And a lot of papers have, of course, come to the conclusion that these stringent labor regulations have hurt, you know, productivity, output, employment growth, investment in states, and so on. But more recently, uh, you know, there's been a very sharp criticism of this index, by Professor Dita Bhattacharji at the Delhi School of Economics, where he points out all the, the econometric flaws, the measurement issues, the technical issues which are there in this index and highlighted how flawed it is. So, you know, there is this technical argument about what is wrong with the index and therefore... One has to be cautious in interpreting that academic literature. And the second is, of course, you have to see um, what these laws are on paper versus what they are in actuality. And even when we do all these academic exercises, we are not able to capture what is happening de facto. We are just interpreting the law uh, as it as it is. But I think, you know, um, more important than that um, is the fact that, you know, I'm not saying that while I may say that, you know, labor regulations are this discussion is a bit of a red herring in this uh, discourse around uh, the performance of labor intensive manufacturing. But I do want to highlight that even for us to be good at labor intensive manufacturing, we need to have a workforce with a basic level of industrial literacy. You don't need very high skilled workers or whatever, but you need them to have a basic level of industry, industry literacy that requires investing in their human capital. Now, traditionally, we know that we have. Not done very well on that. And this is not a problem, which is of recent origin. It's, it's, it's been a problem which has been there forever. So I think recognizing that we need to enhance the productivity of our labor for labor intensive manufacturing to do well is extremely important. And even for them, the labor regulatory framework, while, you know, it is indeed the case that firms need to be able to have some sort of flexibility to manage their workforce. Uh, you cannot put, you know, very onerous regulations on firms because that obviously inhibits their, invest, uh, their incentive to invest and expand and so on. But at the same time, if we have these precarious uh, work relationships where there's a lot of instability, there is very little incentive for a worker or a firm to invest in each other you know, firm specific human capital doesn't get accumulated. So how is the worker's productivity or the firm productivity going to enhance? So therefore, I would say that, you know, from the labor regulation perspective, the discussion needs to shift from this, uh, of thinking of it in terms of flexibility versus inflexibility to instead thinking about how can we have a labor regulatory architecture that can in fact enhance the productivity of our labor, and thereby allow labor-intensive manufacturing to grow.
0: So uh, this actually reminds me of something that I read uh, in a chapter that you've written uh, in the book that we uh, mentioned at the start of the podcast, where you mentioned that the average years of schooling in India are about 4.4 years to China's 7.5. And even there, you have stressed that uh, we need to stop, or rather industries need to stop thinking of labor as a factor whose wages have to be pushed down uh, instead of as a resource uh, of human capital, which has to be invested in. Um, Would it be fair to say that this is tied to the fact that more skilled labor would help in the transition to an industry setup where we have larger firms as opposed to numerous small firms?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, in fact, this this point of um, skills, uh, it's it's also worth noting that skilled labor, the lack of availability of skilled labor is actually cited by industry as a far graver problem than labor, than, than the labor laws themselves. So, in fact, I think it was 2013 or 14 in the World Bank Enterprise Surveys. Uh, the firms were asked to list, uh, you know, what are the constraints? uh that they are facing and here it was actually skilled labor the lack of skilled labor that emerged as one of the top one or two constraints and labor laws were were below at like number five or number six so of course you know it's it's a far greater factor and they are interrelated because like I said you know a lot of the skills is what you might acquire in school in college during vocational training but a lot of these skills are also what you acquire at your workplace that accumulation of firm-specific human capital will happen if you have stability in those uh, employer-employee arrangements. And, And, you know, there is absolutely no denying the fact that Skilling, in fact, is going to become an even bigger issue going ahead, because as there are rapid changes in the world of work, there are going to be new techniques of production. There is already a reasonable amount of automation which is happening, and we see it happening in the very uh, capital-intensive sectors. Skilling people is going to become important, and what we are going to what skills we are going to provide them is going to become another important issue, because we can't sort of predict, you know, what the jobs of the future are going to be. Or what are the tasks which will be enabled in those jobs, say, you know, five or six years from now? So we have to provide workers with this, you know, set of foundational skills, which then give them that skill of adaptability that they can adapt and say that, you know, today, this these firms uh, are using this method of production. And tomorrow we have to adapt. We might have to adapt uh, to something else. And. It's ironic, by the way, the disconnect between education and skills, because on the one hand, if you look at the data that comes out from the Periodic Labor Force Survey, uh, you, you see that you have the highest unemployment rate for educated youth in India. And yet you have industry complaining that one of the biggest constraints they face is the lack of skilled labor. This is also telling us something about when people are educated on paper, how job ready or employable, they are perceived as by industry. So smoothening that transition from your school to your workplace, uh, and the role of skilling in that to make people job ready is, is extremely important. And of course, you know, we we'll, I'm sure we'll go into more detail on this issue of firm size, which you flagged. But yes, of course, you know, larger firms will use more modern techniques of production. Uh, larger firms provide better wages, they uh, then Generally, the value added per worker is far higher in larger firms compared to micro and small enterprises. And these skilled workers are, are the ones who are going to get the jobs there. And in fact, very often because of their inability to find those jobs, uh, productive jobs, because they may not have the right skills, they are forced to work in the informal sector or they are forced to set up own account enterprises or micro enterprises and so you end up with this firm size distribution where basically 95% of enterprises in India are less than five workers if you include that entire space of organized and unorganized sector and counting the own account enterprises uh and and a lot of that stems from the inability of people to actually find formal jobs uh in 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 big industries
0: so just to follow up on that point uh you have said in your uh, 2022 paper that if we look at the distribution of employment, we see uh, a large mass of people who are employed in these very small, micro, perhaps self-owned enterprises. And then we have a very large mass of workers are employed in very large industries. And we have a very low mass of workers in industries that are firms that are of medium size. However, if we look at uh, the distribution of industries themselves, the industries themselves are skewed very heavily towards small enterprises. So we have a larger number of really small micro enterprises, as opposed to very uh, large enterprises, which are uh, on paper, it would seem that very large enterprises are almost vanishingly small. But an encouraging trend in recent years has been that we see this uh, share of large enterprises increasing over time. What uh, would you say uh, is driving these changes?
1: Okay, so so before I answer this question, I think uh, let me uh, just sort of ex- clarify a little bit about when we are saying, and you're talking about this paper from 2022. <clears throat> what I've done in that paper is basically I combine data enterprise-level data from both the organized and the unorganized sector, so the formal and the informal sector. Now, in the informal sector, as we, as I just mentioned, um, most enterprises are own-account enterprises. So, own-account enterprises are those that operate without any hired labor. And if you you know, they, they account for an overwhelming majority. But now let's remove these from the distribution, which is what, you know, essentially the paper uh, does, is it says, let's remove these own account enterprises, which you may argue are subsistence enterprises. And now let's look at the distribution of firms out without these enterprises. And their micro enterprises following the definition of the OECD because, you know, India's definition of micro, small, medium enterprises comes from the MSME Act, which is based on investment in plant and machinery and turnover. And, you know, those can't exactly be mapped while enterprise level data sets. So we've used in this paper, I've used a proxy of employment because the OECD defines micro, small and medium enterprises based on employment. So micro enterprises are defined as those which have anywhere between one to nine workers and then you have small enterprises which have between 10 and 49 workers and the medium-sized enterprises have 50 to 249 and anything which is above 250 is basically a large enterprise. Now, if there are two things to look at here. One is that you look at the distribution of firms itself, right? And like you said there, what we find is that Basically, over 90% of firms are micro-enterprises in India. And so you have these very, very small enterprises uh, there. Most of these micro-enterprises are, in fact, in the informal sector. They're not in the formal sector. And most of the large ones are obviously in the formal sector. And what we find here, interestingly, is that even over time, that distribution hasn't changed. So it's not like we move toward the share of larger enterprises has gone up. It is these micro-enterprises which have dominated the distribution for all the time Periods that you know we have data available till 2015-16 because that's the last time that India did this uh, survey on the informal enterprises. Now this is a very funny kind of distribution, and it's been called in the literature as the missing missing middle. And, And why it's been called is because if you look at India's employment distribution in the manufacturing sector, there you find that most of the employment is concentrated either in the very small, which is the micro enterprises or the large enterprises. So you have this bimodal distribution and when you you, you plot it out, it looks like a U-shape and that's called the missing middle. And when you look at the distribution of firms, it's called the missing, missing middle because your large firms are missing, the medium-sized firms are missing, the small firms are missing and basically what you've got are micro firms and that hasn't changed at all. But on the employment side, one interesting uh, trends that I find in this paper, when we track the distribution of employment from 2000 to 2015-16, what we find is that the share of employment in the large enterprises, so the 250 plus enterprises, has gone up by about 10 percentage points. And concomitantly, the share of employment in the micro enterprises has gone down by about nine percentage points. And now this is obviously a positive development because like I mentioned before, the larger firms are the ones which create better jobs, better paying jobs, the more productive jobs. And, um, We want that kind of shift in the distribution to happen. But what is interesting is that, you know, we need to understand, I mean, this is a a positive thing. It's something which we observe, not just in the aggregate data at the All India level, but also when we disentangle and look at disaggregate and look at things at the industry level, uh, we look at at the state level. And this trend pretty much holds true that the share of employment in large enterprises is going up. And then. In a, in a follow-up paper, which is you know not in the uh, which is not published yet, but it's a follow-up paper to, to this paper, uh, my, my my co-author Christopher and I are trying to understand what it is that is actually driving this change in the distribution, and what we are finding is that there is evidence of some small and medium firms that are moving up the size distribution, which might be driving this increase in the share of large enterprises, the increase in the share of employment in large enterprises. Uh, What we're also finding is that there is some evidence of new enterprises, new large enterprises, or new medium-sized enterprises who are entering um, the, uh, the the sort of the manufacturing uh, landscape, but they're basically both these features, which are very interesting. And the first one is of particular interest because what it's telling us is that there are some dynamic. SMEs. I don't say micro because, you know, the, the micro ones which are one to nine are not jumping into this 250 plus bin. Uh, it's basically the ones who are in the medium or the small category that are moving up. And that's telling us that there are some of these dynamic enterprises, what are called gazelles in the literature that are moving up in the size distribution. So the question then is, you know, how do we identify these? Dynamic enterprises, these gazelles, and what's it on the policy side that we can actually do to support them? And uh, you know, identifying these is is really challenging. Uh, and if we were able to do that, I think it would make uh, uh, things very you know relatively easy. But but that challenge is is very much. Uh, there, but it's an encouraging sign because it tells you that there are dynamic enterprises which are growing. Because otherwise, if you look at the rest of the the manufacturing landscape, what you see is it's basically dominated by small firms, which are very old also, because that's the other dimension we look at in this. Because in the global literature on firm growth, uh, one very important variable is also the age of the firm. And the, the Indian manufacturing landscape is dominated by both small and old firms, which is telling you that firms are not growing as they age, so they're basically just languishing there. They are not expanding, not creating jobs, not becoming more productive. So, but there are these few positive, um, you know, dynamic firms
0: out there. So the talk of small firms actually brings to mind uh, the Small uh, Scale Reservation Act, I believe it was called the Small Firms Reservation. The Small Scale Reservation Policy. People have pointed out to that policy as like responsible for uh, limiting the growth of these forms by incentivizing them to like, stay at a particular size over the years. Uh, would you say it's fair to ascribe the blame for uh, limited growth on these so-called dwarf forms?
1: So I wouldn't use that word. So, you know, again, um, the small scale reservation policy was the cornerstone of India's industrial policy for many, many decades. And it, of course, incentivized firms to uh, remain small. It had a huge... adverse effect on their productivity. And there's a large body of work, uh, you know, there is, there's there's work by Dr. Rakesh Mohan, there's work by Dr. Alualia, uh, and they've all documented the adverse effects of this small scale reservation policy. And of course, you know, the policy has been been done away with, uh, and all the items which were on the reserved list were removed after 2015. I mean, the process started in 97, but the last item was removed in 2015. So, you know, there, there is I mean, there's enough academic literature also which supports the fact that the small-scale reservation policy definitely had an adverse impact. Also, I want to add to this, you know, when we're talking about these small and medium enterprises, um, a lot of them are in the informal sector. And, you know, the question of why there are so many enterprises that are still in the informal sector, because I think you mentioned even in your introduction. Uh, If you look at the manufacturing sector, it's dualistic in nature. So you have, you know, some enterprises which are in the formal sector, vast majority of enterprises are in the informal sector, while the formal sector accounts for a much higher share of output, it accounts for a much lower share of employment, and the opposite holds true for uh, the informal sector. As a result of, you know, all these policies, also the fact that there was a lot of subcontracting which happened to smaller firms. Uh, Many of the firms have just chosen to remain small. They've chosen to remain in the informal sector. But it's also important to remember that, you know, a lot of these firms, while there are some firms for which this might hold true, there are also serious problems of productivity here. And some of these firms could actually become more productive if they could access credit more easily, if they had access to their skills, if they were able to access the market, uh, you know, get the right techniques of production and so on. They could become more productive and that would, you know, organically enable their formalization and also encourage them then to expand. So it's important to give them support. You know, the kind of support we're talking about, it could be in the context of, you know, access to skills, credit, market, you know, even a lot of uh, differential taxation that was there in the case of uh, the small, uh, a lot of the policy support that was given to SMEs. But, you know, this policy should not become something that incentivizes them to remain small. Because, When we put this threshold that, okay you can avail of these benefits only or if your investment in plant and machinery remains below a certain threshold or your turnover remains below a certain threshold, what incentive will the firm have to expand? Uh, On the other hand, you know, perhaps another way of going about it would be to say we're going to give you the support for three to five years. And then, you know, you make what it is of that and then are on your own. So if it's based on, you know, a time limit as opposed to saying you stay below this and then you get the benefits. Of course it's going to uh it it will encourage firms uh
0: to expand. So I'd like to just touch on the issue of productivity for just a quick second. So uh this brings us back to your book again where uh, it lays out quite clearly why uh, we should make manufacturing a priority where you basically show us that on average uh uh, for like high-skilled sector services uh, jobs, uh, you have productivity that is maybe four to five times the national average. And for manufacturing, it is up to 1.5 times the national average. And so we have these gaps in productivity that we can bridge by allocating labor more efficiently. Um, so... I'm thinking now I'm trying to connect uh, the issue of greater productivity to higher wages, which is, I think, in one of our end goals here as we uh, sort of try to bring more workers into the formal sector. Um, and one of the things that firms have been doing uh, for uh, a long time now, uh, from the early 2000s, is they have been uh, getting around uh, inflexible labor regulations with the use of contract workers. Uh, so some of this was helped by some very prominent judgments, such as the Steel Authority of India Limited Judgment of 2001. But there were others uh, in, uh, for example, the case of the International Airport Authority in 2009. And each of these judgments have basically weakened the links between an employer and a contract worker or the obligations that an employer has towards a contract worker. And firms have been uh, making use of these uh, sort of uh, uh, opportunities. Uh, so you have uh, uh, what I thought were some very illuminating points on uh, this trend, uh, particularly in uh, Krishna Priya uh, and Kapoor and Krishna Priya twenty nineteen, where you talk about how uh, firms might be using contract labor as a bargaining tool against uh, uh, their formal workers. So I have a two part uh, concern uh, here. Firstly, uh, Do you think uh, that this would, this uh, bodes poorly for any formalization that the country can achieve in the medium term? That if we formalize more, we would only expect to see firms take more advantage of these uh, contract workers and uh, use them as a cudgel against formal workers. And uh, secondly, uh, this goes to the paper. how did you and your co-author come to suspect that this might be happening okay. which is uh, which is a process that i found very interesting it's very well reasoned out in the paper and uh, I, it would be i think it would be really helpful for us to uh, if you could walk us through that logic
1: Okay, so so before I go to, to that, let me just outline one definition, uh, which is this whole idea of formality, because we're using this jargon so much in this conversation. Uh, there is the formal sector and the informal sector. And here, you know, the formal sector will be defined by enterprises, say, you know, in the manufacturing sector, it is enterprises which are covered under the Factories Act, uh, which have, you know, 10 or more workers and operate with electricity and so on. So there is an enterprise-based defini- definition or formality, which tells us if the firm or the enterprise is in the formal or the informal sector. But then there is also an employment-based definition formality and by the way all these definitions are coming from the ILO uh, and the, uh, the employment-based definition of formality comes from things like you know do you have access to social security uh, what is the security of your tenure and so on and different countries define a formal or informal employment arrangement in different ways. In India we say that if you have access to at least one social security benefit you're considered a formal worker now what the when we say informal employment what we are talking about is basically you know people who are employed in the informal sector most of which predominantly 99.9% have no access to social security but we are also talking about people who are in the formal sector but are informally employed which means you there are many people in the formal sector also who don't have access to social security. So I could be working for an enterprise which is registered under the factories act, but my work arrangement may be such that I don't actually have access to social security. And so therefore I'm uh, defined as an informal worker. So, so there are these two definitions and when you combine that enterprise based definition with the employment uh, arrangement based definition, then you get this whole idea of formality and informality. And, so, so what happened was that, you know, when we started analyzing the performance of uh, the manufacturing sector, and we we find that uh, the annual survey of industries, which, by the way, is an extremely rich database on India's industrial sector, which gives you, you know, excellent details on what the composition of the workforce is, what kind of, uh, you know, employment arrangement you have, the wage bill, and so on, uh, they're basically two categories of production workers over there one are directly employed workers those who are hired directly by um, the firm so they are on the payrolls of the firm and therefore when we talk about things like industrial disputes act and so on when you count how many people they are on the firm's master roll these are the people who get covered under the act the alternative is that you have contract workers where f- firms can basically hire workers via a contractor through an intermediary. Now, what we find were, found was that between 2000 and 2015-16, the, in the former manufacturing sector, which is the annual survey of industries database, employment increased from about 7.5 million to somewhere to about 13.9 million. And about almost half, I think it was 47% of the growth in production workers had actually come from contract workers. Now, if you look at um, the there is, there is, of course, you know, the growing use of contract workers is something which has been documented by many people before us, and and many have argued that it is in fact India's rigid labor regulations, which uh, are responsible for this phenomena. But when we start disentangling and looking at, you know, what are the kind of industries where uh, contract workers share is increasing. Or what are the kind of states where the share of contract workers is increasing? Now, what you would expect based on all the existing uh, uh, work there is, is that you would expect to find greater use of contract workers in labor intensive industries, because obviously your rigid so-called rigid labor regulations would bite more in labor intensive industries. You would expect uh, a greater contractualization in states which are seen as having inflexible rigid labor regulations, because again, that's where uh, they they would be biting labor-intensive industries more. But when we started slicing and dicing the data in different ways, what we found was that this was in fact not the case. Interestingly, we found that it's actually in capital-intensive industries, which over time have started using more contract labor. Similarly, we found that it was you know, both in states would have flexible and inflexible labor regulations of so the share of uh, contract labor had increased. So there was no defining trend there vis-a-vis uh, labor regulations. Also, it was large capital intensive industries. You know, it's not the firms which were in the 50 to 99 bin where one traditionally argues that labor regulations bite because the IDA kicks in at, at 100 workers in most states. Um, and we didn't find any of that happening. Um the other argument for the use of contract workers is that contract workers are in fact cheaper than production workers, uh, than directly employed workers, which of course is something which is which was there in the ASI data as well, because we could disentangle their wage rates, because we have wonderful details on the entire wage bill. But what we found was that even though contract workers were cheaper than the directly employed workers, over time, the wage differential was narrowing down and that was something that was really uh you know sort of uh made us sort of think you know why is this happening that when contract workers are becoming relatively and i mean i'm using the word relatively because they are still cheaper but relatively becoming more expensive over time as compared to directly employed workers why are so many firms hiring them and more so why is it that they're doing it in capital intensive industries in large capital intensive industries and across states not just states which have uh Inflexible labor regulations. And of course, you know, we started looking at some of the literature, which is in the West, on the use of how firms sometimes outsource work uh, to, to workers outside the firm, or they develop this alternative pool of workers to whom they can, you know, give the work. And the idea there is that basically by having this alternative pool of workers, uh, they are actually able to suppress the bargaining power of their directly employed workers. So that then helps to suppress their bargaining power and then their wage bill and the wages of directly employed workers. And that's exactly what we found to be the case in this paper. I mean, it's empirically validated. We've developed a theoretical model and the trends support it. And so the argument is essentially that, you know, the other thing over here is that what we found is increasing use of contract workers, but over time, it's not like labor regulations have become more rigid in India. In fact, post 2000, 2001, they have only become more flexible with various amendments. And as you pointed out to the various judgments, they have only encouraged the use of contract workers by absolving the firm of any responsibility vis-a-vis the contract worker. So, you know, it's it's clearly not that. And and so then we find that you know there, there is another very important benefit that firms have. And this was borne out by the fact that when we actually looked at the wage growth, the real wage growth of directly employed workers in India's manufacturing sector, it was flat over that period. And that's something which was really alarming and actually goes to say that look, you know, these labor regulations. Uh not only, you know, do you have the argument about how firms are complaining that they discourage us to invest, expand and so on. But on the worker side also, what's what's basically happening is that the wages are not growing. Right. And if so, the real wages of directly employed workers in the manufacturing sector are not growing up. That's, you know, workers are being used to suppress the bargaining power of another type of workers. And it's just hurting uh, their, their interests over there.
0: So. If I could ask just one slightly unrelated question, uh, would you say that the proliferation or the relative uh, growth of capital-intensive industries as opposed to labor-intensive industries is in part driven by an inverted tariff structure?
1: Well, uh, you know, that, uh, to my mind, that inverted tariff structure hurts both capital and labor-intensive industries. Uh, I think for manufacturing to grow, as I mentioned in the beginning, you have to have a trade policy which is aligned uh, to the growth of that sector. And that has not only to do with your imports, because having access to quality, reasonably priced imports is important to be able to produce competitively to cater to international markets. But I think also to have free trade agreements where you can get your goods out, get them to access markets more cheaply uh, is, is very important. So I think that factor to my mind has, has you know, plays on both sides. But one industry that definitely stands out in this context is the apparel industry, which is a highly labor intensive industry, which has the potential, enormous potential to my mind of creating jobs, uh, productive employment. For not just men, but also for women, uh, which is very important in the context of the discussion that we have around the low participation of women in in, in economic activity in India. And that's one sector which has definitely been adversely impacted uh, by our trade policy, the high tariffs, uh, import duties that are there on synthetic fibers, because, as you know, you know, the world demand is shifting towards uh, clothes which are made from man-made fibers, Whereas it's very expensive to get those in here to get them to act to reach the 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 apparel manufacturers, it's expensive, so they're not able to produce competitively uh, for international markets. But you know, I'm going to sort of flip your question and say that if you ask me that, what is the one factor? It's I wouldn't say it's. I mean, trade policy is a very important factor, like I said in the beginning. I would say the fact that you know. We've really not recognized and given labor intensive manufacturing, it's due in India's industrial policy discourse. And again, you know, as, as I mentioned this in the book, it's nothing all which is of recent origin. Of course, you see it playing out in things like, uh, you know, even if you look at the production linked incentive scheme today, they haven't picked very um, labor intensive sectors, though I mean, I'm... I'm very happy that we have an industrial policy and that, you know, it's important to have certain targeted sectors, but it would, from an employment generation perspective, uh, it, it would be useful to have more labor-intensive sectors in that list. But even if you go back to, you know, India right after independence, you look at the second five-year plan, which laid the foundations and the framework for India's industrial growth, the Maharanobu strategy of industrialization, uh, the focus there was on capital goods. And of course, there were compelling reasons for that as well at that time. You know, there was strategic reasons. Reasons, because we had just become independent. We didn't want to be reliant on others for capital goods. We didn't think that through labor intensive, we would be able to earn enough foreign exchange to import capital goods and so on. Um, you know, there were, there were various, the capital intensive industries were seen as temples of modern India, labor intensive industries were not seen that um, in that manner. But I think traditionally the neglect of labor intensive manufacturing, the fact that industrial policy has not given it its due is a very very big factor which is which is responsible for that and now we are at this point where basically you know in most of the labor intensive industries the the production the work is happening in the informal sector in in small and medium enterprises and so the question then becomes of how do you really enhance the productivity of these enterprises to make them you know grow let them cater to export markets and it's it's not just about oh let's get a few large enterprises to set up in labor intensive sectors i mean of course that's good but given the existing status quo the firm landscape that is there in india it's very important to also get you know think about how many of these msme's which are in the informal sector, doing very labor-intensive activity. How their productivity uh, can be uh, enhanced, and you know, effective cluster development policies here can play a very, very uh, important role.
0: So, um, to bring us back to the issue of uh, labor regulations and some of the things uh, that you, we have discussed in your papers, but would you say that uh, uh, so we have had a few labor reforms in 2022? Uh, do you see uh, them correcting for or having a major impact in the future uh, for uh, labor-intensive formal manufacturing?
1: So, well, definitely, uh, see, I mean, what the four labor codes, which to my understanding are still not in effect. Uh, They've been announced and passed in parliament and so on, but they're still not in effect. So one of the problems with the labor um, law landscape was also there were far too many laws. Uh, there was duplications, so the whole ex- there were there need to be this ex- exercise of rationalizing them, harmonizing them, uh, you know codifying them in a simpler manner. And that of course is one of the things that the the current labor codes try to do, and and that's a positive. But it's important to remember that, you know, a lot of the things that we are talking about, which have hurt manufacturing, uh, say, in the context of Industrial Disputes Act or regulations imposed by Factories Act that you've got to have, like, you know, a spittoon here and onerous things like that. I mean, state governments have parallelly already been making amendments on a lot of these acts. so. On this labor issue, there is the subject, you know, labor being on the concurrent list. There are things that the central government is doing, which are the four codes. But then there are all these amendments which are simultaneously, which are being made by the state government, which... Uh, which are perceived as being employer-friendly. employer, employer friendly. For example, you know, the increase in the threshold of IDA from 100 to 300 workers that we've seen in states like Rajasthan, uh, the increase in the threshold of, of the Factories Act. So let's sort of disentangle these two and then answer that question. Um, so on, if you look at these, these amendments, which have been done by the state governments, at, at this point, there's very little empirical evidence To actually back the fact that they have led to growth of uh, investment or employment or output or number of firms in the manufacturing sector. Now, again, uh, this is because, like I said, you know, sometimes I think we are getting lost in this argument of the importance of labor regulations, it might be a bit of a red redheading because of the rest of the enabling environment for industry to grow in a state. Um, the rest of the investment climate is not conducive. Then even if you say like relax and give a holiday to all labor laws, it may not attract industry, right? If you don't have your infrastructure in place, if you don't have uninterrupted power supply, if you are not able to provide skilled labor. So we actually, I mean, and I'm, this is again a paper that I'm working on with my colleague Krishna Preha, where we've tried to examine the impact of the amendments made by Rajas Ton. and and so far uh, we haven't really found any positive impact on any indicator of industrial performance and um, and yes so therefore you know there are many other important factors like the ones we've been discussing all along that matter now on the the codes again you know a lot of the codes like for example the industrial relations codes and so on uh they are being perceived as being employer friendly um There are some positives here, by the way, but I don't know how it's going to pan out. And let me just mention a few. For example, there is the introduction of fixed term employment, uh, which is a good thing and basically should typically discourage contractualization. Because at least what fixed term employment does is that while there are no costs that the firm has to bear when it retrenches or lays off a worker, I mean, it's a defined contract. So you don't have to bear any burden when the person's contract, the firm doesn't have to bear any burden when the firm's con- person's contract gets over. But for that duration, you have to provide social security during the period they are working. So that, that, that's a very positive development. Yeah. But we I mean, we have very little data at this point to tell us uh, how this fixed term contract has panned out, our firms actually hiring. On fixed term contracts, or are they continue to hire it, hire uh, contract workers? Um, the other, of course, is the code on social security, which is really interesting. Um, which basically, again, says that you know, as as I told you, you have the employment based definition of formal and informal workers, or organized and unorganized. The jargon that we use in India, and what that code says is that we're also going to provide social security to unorganized workers. So that, of course, is a is is a very very positive thing but of course you know there are huge challenges in how this is going to go forward i mean the first step has been to create this database of unorganized workers through the ishram uh, database but the question of who is actually going to fund this uh, how they're going to deal with the issue of migrant workers okay, the state can possibly not provide social security there so, you know, uh, that's, that's how it's going to play out is unclear. Similarly, the code on minimum wages is a very positive thing to the extent that it has said that minimum wages will now also have to be followed in the informal sector. But again, we don't know how you can possibly impose uh, minimum wages in the informal sector, especially, you know, when when you have so much casual uh, labor and anyway, 50% of employment is is self-employment uh, in India. So I think on net, uh, it's it's... It's unclear how this is going to pan out. There are a lot of, you know, pros and cons on uh, both sides. But I would still, you know, answer this question by saying that just making labor regulations being more employer friendly, which, as I said, we have to move beyond that conversation of rigid and stringent, uh, is, is not going to even motivate industry to invest unless the rest of the enabling environment investment climate is right them
0: to invest. So uh, some of the things that you just mentioned uh, sort of tie in with uh, the competitiveness and productivity of firms. And I kind of want to use this opportunity to talk about something that you've uh, mentioned in your chapter in the book uh, uh, in honor of Dr. Ishar Uh, Aluwalia. And uh, so there was a line there that I hadn't really considered until I read it. Uh, which is you stress the importance of improving productivity and competitiveness for firms, small and medium firms in the informal sector, such that eventually we may see a transition to greater productivity and uh, uh, competitiveness in the formal sector. Uh, Could you perhaps expound on the uh, uh, process behind that?
1: Yes. So You know, if you think of the whole process of structural transformation and and what Arthur Lewis said and how basically, uh, you know, you have to reallocate your labor from low productivity to high productivity activities and when we say low productivity to high productivity we we often mean informal to formal from the traditional to the modern from the agriculture to industry and services and that's basically you know been this process of structural transformation in in most economies and you know there's a there's a little nuance that you can add on that which is basically uh you know something which has been pointed out by two economists who were uh, at the ILO, Noman Majid and Professor Ajit Kosh, uh, you know, they have actually argued that in labor surplus economy, such as India, it is possible that we will not see that process of structural transformation happening straight from the informal to the formal. But because that informal sector is so large, it is so heterogeneous, the fact that there is an entire continuum of productivities, it's not a binary of like, you know, informal zero, formal one. But within that informal, there is a continuum of productivities. It is very possible that actually when we are talking about productivity, increasing a firm's productivity, they might remain in the informal sector, but still move up that productivity uh, distribution and that might be the first process before which they actually become productive enough to jump and be in the in the formal sector so and that's why when i when i was talking about small and medium enterprises and saying that why you need to focus on them is because there are many such dynamic enterprises which are there even in the informal sector which if provided the necessary support can actually grow and expand and enhance their productivity. And eventually they will move into the formal sector. So what, what they say, which to my mind makes uh, a lot of sense looking at also the sort of statistics that are there in that chapter where we analyze the productivity differential between um, the formal and the informal sector. And of course, uh, you know the informal enterprise database that we have in India is also you know, quite a fascinating one where you can again look at gross value added per worker across different sorts of enterprises in the informal sector. That also seems to be suggesting that there is some productivity uh, improvement increase that is happening in that informal sector. So so the point I'm basically trying to say is to sort of brush the entire informal sector under the carpet and say that we just need to formalize it. We we have to be uh, a little careful in, in understanding the nuances and the heterogeneities in that sector, because they are, in fact, while you do have a very large number of own account enterprises or subsistence enterprises, you know, basically, which are just making enough to go by for survival, there are also others, which which have that potential to grow and expand. And interestingly, if you go to this database of, um, you know, the informal sector database that I'm talking about, you will find firms which have about 20 workers, they are even firms which have 40 workers. Now you would think that these firms should actually not be in the informal sector. Technically, they should be registered in the Factories Act and be covered in the in the formal sector database. But you're still finding these firms. So it's 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 really quite baffling. I mean, I think uh <laughs> I mean, I, I, there's still a lot of work to do on the informal sector to really understand what's what's going on there, because it's really quite complex, but it's, it's very integral to that growth story. It is very integral to the story of structural transformation in India, because there will be a lot of churn that will happen in there before the movement happens to the formal.
0: So uh, another thing that uh, sort of might be interesting for us uh, to think about is, So we talked at the start of the episode about a lot of uh, issues that have held back productivity and competitiveness for uh, manufacturing in general. Uh, Some of this has to do with uh, inverted tariff structures, uh, lack of credit, infrastructure, perhaps uh, the lack of electricity uh, supply, things like that. Uh, Amongst these uh, factors... Uh, one that often comes up is that of infrastructure. Um, and so uh, and we know that the present government has made a lot of uh, pains to uh, improve uh, road connectivity and uh, rail connectivity and so forth uh, but if you look at uh, the logistical uh, uh, the LPI index at the World Bank, India actually at present is not doing too poorly relative to other nations that have taken great strides in manufacturing uh, recently, like Bangladesh or Vietnam. Um, So, what are what would be your thoughts on how big of a factor infrastructure currently is for manufacturing, and if it should even be in the same category of concerns as, uh, let's say, uh lack of electricity supply or a lack of credit
1: I think it's it's hugely important. It's it's as important as any of the other factors, in fact, that uh, you mentioned. So I think that the focus that there is the big thrust that we see on infrastructure is is hugely welcome, uh, and and you know also because one is uh, the indirect the the effect that of course infrastructure has on enhancing the productive capacity of the economy and encouraging investment, and then you know job creation and growth and so on. But also there's the direct effect. Because, by the way, infrastructure sec- infrastructure activity in itself also creates jobs, and then because in creating that infrastructure activity, the goods that are used are often generated by the manufacturing sector as well. Uh, so, so therefore, you know, there is there is it's it's actually one of the key sectors that the government should be investing in, and is rightly doing so uh, at this moment in time. Uh, now, again, you know, on this infrastructure, I think one has to be like like you have this whole discussion between the large and the SMEs. Uh, I, I would sort of say that, okay, so the, in one bucket, you have these very big projects, you know, building of these highways, these airports, all of which are exceedingly important for, uh, you know, getting your, your goods out there, for improving that investment climate, productive capacity, and so on of the economy. So all these projects are, are very important, but many of these projects also have very long gestation periods. Uh, so, while you pursue these projects, it's also important that there's smaller projects, you know, smaller infrastructure projects, more local projects, which are done, which can immediately enhance the capacity of the local economy. And this is especially important when we're talking about all these micro and small enterprises you know, which are in the informal sector, which are often in rural areas. They don't have, you know, they can't access their basic imports or they don't, ha- you know, have the road to get their, their product to the market and so on. So one also needs to think about while we have all these grant projects, which are there at the central level, the role of the state and the local governments is also very important um, over here in providing local projects that can immediately enhance the competitiveness of SMEs. And in this, I should actually highlight one very interesting case study that I came across. In fact, there's a there's a wonderful book which uh, analyzes us, you know, about ten clusters, industry clusters in, in India, which is written by uh, which has been edited by Professor Nagaraj. and one of the clusters that they picked up over there is the Morbi industry cluster, and they talk about the ceramic tiles over there. And over there, when they document the success of that cluster, what the manufacturers point out is that actually, you know, there were just basically two or three prerequisites that they required which the local government, the state government provided them, and that helped improve their productivity enormously. I mean, it was, you know, basically they wanted a natural gas pipeline, they wanted uninterrupted power supply. I mean, just basic things like this that, you know, also don't perhaps require the sort of clearances and permissions that a lot of these big projects require, but they were immediately able uh, to improve their competitiveness and productivity, and it's documented, I think, even in the, in the book that, you know, today... At one point, they were fearful of Chinese imports because of the tires that were coming from China. And now, basically, it's this small this being industry cluster, which is a huge supplier to the Middle East. So I think it goes to show that a lot of interventions that can happen at the local level uh, and a lot of these infrastructure bottlenecks, especially, can even be addressed uh, at, at that level, especially for uh, MSMEs sometimes. And I think more broadly, this is reiterates what I've been talking about in general, that For the manufacturing sector, there is what can be done by the central government. But a lot of the real action will have to happen at the state level. And so you'll have to have state governments, you know, chief ministers, mayors, whoever, at the local level to be very enthused about manufacturing. I mean, you know, the fact that the central government put out a policy like make in India that they want to create, you know, 100 million jobs out of manufacturing, having that goal sent the signal that we are serious about manufacturing. We're, we're not no longer saying that, look, we've leapfrogged this phase of manufacturing and growth and we can get by without it. Uh, so that signaling is important, but a lot of the real action is going to happen at uh, the state level. So, you know, on on various dimensions. And one example of that is, of course, the infrastructure one I gave you.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Kapoor, for joining us uh, for this discussion. Uh, This was very helpful, and I hope our audience also gets um, a lot out of this discussion uh, as much as I did. Um, Thank you again, and hopefully we will keep in touch.
1: Thank you. It It was a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for your very sharp questions.
0: we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.